Mark 1, a day in the life of the Messiah in Capernaum. Jesus calls four fishermen to come follow him, and immediately they leave everything and follow. He then casts out an unclean spirit who's raising a ruckus in the synagogue. He then cures Peter's mother-in-law of a fever and raises her up to serve. And then in the evening, the entire village city is gathered around and he heals those with many sicknesses and casts out demons. Not the average success day for ministers. But after this stellar day, Simon and his companions hunt him down while he's at prayer. And he's risen early in the morning to go to a deserted place to pray. Luke 5.16 says that he did this as was his custom. But Simon and the others are anxious that this moment of glory might not slip away. And so they hunt him down, they track him down and interrupt him in his moment of prayer to inform him that there are more important things to do. I can't imagine what it would have been like if Jesus lived in the day of cell phones, email, texting, twittering, and instant messaging. The disciples inform him, everyone in Capernaum is looking for you. You've got to get back there. And this episode is the first inkling that Jesus' followers, they're not identified as disciples, but Simon and his companions, this is the first inkling that they are not going to be on the same page with Jesus. They want to capitalize on the welcome surge in popularity. We can go big. We can build on this tremendous following. We can have more evening healings and perhaps a band concert. We can have a Capernaum healing theme park, bring in all the tourists. They want to repeat the glory of the previous day. And Jesus is oriented to the future and new places. He has no interest in the adulation of a fickle crowd. And so he has gone out early in the morning to prepare for his ministry through prayer. And when you go out, you leave home court advantage. And you're in the opponent's arena. And there's a time they're on the sea and they're almost sunk by a sea squall. Jesus saves them. And no sooner do they land at the other side of the lake than than they thank God they're on solid ground. And there's this wild man who comes rushing at them. He's as storm-tossed within as the ship had been storm-tossed on the lake. And in ministry, that's the way it can seem. You get through one storm, and then something else hits you in the face. The man is a local terror 
whose home is the unclean place of the dead among the cave tombs, and he himself is the home of unclean spirits. Mark tells us something about his past. He's a multiple offender. They tried to overpower him but failed. They tried the chains and the fetters. He broke them like string. They tried to tame him like a wild animal because he acted like a wild animal. Night and day he screams in the hills from the anguish deep within, from the pain from people who tried to beat him quiet, from the times he lacerated himself with stones. Stories about him were used to scare children to death. If you don't eat your Brussels sprouts, I'm going to bring that crazy man who yells all night. He'll make you do it. If you don't quit hitting your brother, I'm going to send you out to live with that crazy man who yells all night. In ministry, you're going to encounter malignant powers that take over people's lives, deface their humanity, and destroy the lives not only of them but everyone around them. And I don't know what you want to call it. Some people don't like using the term demons for these powers. Even though we use phrases like, what's gotten into you? Or what's come over you? I imagine that most of us sophisticated folks would have been happier if Mark had given us some kind of medical diagnosis for this man's condition. When I was at seminary a long time ago, I broke out in red spots all over the trunk of my body. My new bride insisted that I go to the doctor, even though we could not afford it. She thought it might be leprosy or something like that. <laughs> I go to the doctor. He took one look at me. He said, oh, that's pityriasis rosea. It's harmless. Nothing you can do about it. It'll go away eventually. And that made me feel so much better. I mean, the doctor had a name for it. He didn't think it was going to be terminal for right now. I'm not too sure how it would have felt when he looked at me and said, Oh, my goodness, that's a bad case of skin demons. Have you been hanging around cave tombs? <laughs> I felt relieved. And then it dawned on me on the way out, pity riasis rosia. That's a combination of Greek and Latin or Latinized Greek that just means red spots. <laughs> I just paid a doctor 50 bucks to tell me in Latin and Greek I had red spots. It made me feel so much better. <laughs> crippling evil that seems beyond human decision, beyond human control, beyond human reason. Persons gunned down little school children in an elementary school. People want to know, well, why did he do it? There are persons that you're going to encounter that have this raging civil war 
going on in them. Eugene Lowry said that this man could have said, I feel like there's 6,000 soldiers inside me. Sometimes they march left, sometimes they march right, sometimes in all different directions. I'm pulled one way and then another. I feel like I've got a whole army inside of me and I'm losing the war. And it's not just folks that we say, oh, they're crazy. C.S. Lewis describes his life before his conversion as a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. And I find it fascinating. Jesus never told demonized person to repent. Oh, you've got a bunch of demons. You need to repent. He never said that. He said that they needed a greater power to deliver them from the thing that got them, had them in their grasp. And Mark tells us that Jesus appointed 12 to do three things. One, to be with him. Two, to go out and proclaim the message. And three, to have authority to cast out demons. Well, in chapter 7, verse 33, they brought a deaf mute to Jesus. Verse 30c, it says he took him aside from the crowd privately. He stuck his fingers in his ear, ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply and he said, which is be opened. And immediately his ears were open, his tongue was loose, and he spoke plainly. Now, I can understand Jesus looking up to heaven, groaning, shouting out in Aramaic, but sticking his finger in his ears and spinning. The yuck factor. Uh, you, know, you know, maybe Matthew and Luke committed this because it seemed too magical or something like that. But my best guess is that Jesus was doing this to show the deaf man to expect healing. He couldn't communicate with him. He couldn't speak to him. And so he acts out what he intends to do for him. And in in the Gospel of Mark, opening a person's ears is vital because Jesus says again and again and again and again that you need to hear his words. It's said that Beethoven on his dying, on his deathbed said, I shall hear in heaven. He hoped for the restoration of his physical hearing. But unless you hear Jesus' words spiritually on earth, you will not be able to hear him in heaven. St. Ambrose says everything that we believe comes either through sight or through hearing. And sight is often deceived. Hearing is the guarantee. But the problem is today is getting people to hear 
And I'm, I'm not just listen, but to hear and understand. I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we have in ministry. People don't hear us. They don't understand. I, when I was at the seminary where I was trained and started teaching, we had a system of faculty members who were on call in case of emergencies. We had about 80 faculty members. And, and I remember vividly that I was summoned one late one evening to Baptist East emergency room. And one of our new students had been admitted. He was Japanese, and he was deaf. And he'd come to study at our deaf ministry program at the Boyce Bible School, which was part of the seminary. And when I got to the emergency room, the doctors and nurses, there were a couple of doctors and nurses gathered around him. They'd not been able to communicate. And when I got into the room, boy, they all said, they looked to me as if I was going to do something. <laughs> I immediately could tell I could do nothing. And, and, and so, it, it, then, so because they couldn't communicate, you know, they just started to talk over him as if he didn't exist. You know, he's lying there. And you just see he's frightened. He's in deep pain. And, and, and we're just talking over, over him. And finally, we got somebody who knew sign language. And I thought, phew, man, we got somebody who knows sign language, be able to communicate. I was so ignorant. I did not know that there was not such a thing as universal sign language. He spoke Japanese sign language. This person came with American sign language. I didn't know. So then they all started to look back at me. And the only thing that I could do is primitive sign language and take hold of his hand and make signs that I was praying for him. It's all I could do. The situation wasn't ideal, but somehow communication occurred. And we live in a world where people do not understand our language, our words, let alone our story. Ludwig Wittgenstein says, the limits of my language are the limits of my mind. All I know is what I have words for. I don't know if it's true or not. But the truth is, the world does not know our words. You come to seminary and all of a sudden you realize, I've got to get a, one of those glossary of theological terms, biblical terms. But the world doesn't know words like grace and faith. They don't understand basic things. I find this out when I get on an airplane. And I'll be sitting there. I'm, the last time this happened, I was reading a comment, big, thick commentary on Mark. And somebody sitting next to me is looking at it and said, what's that? And then I said, well, this is a commentary. And, and, and he, well, tell me what this is all about. And I realized I didn't have the words to explain to him in words that he could understand what we're talking about. And sometimes I think what we're going to have to do is use body language. They can understand acts of loving kindness. They can understand when we can touch those who need assurance. 
We're going to have to use language that people can understand. And sometimes what we do is just talking over them to one another. Well, there's another triumphal moment in Jesus' ministry when he's transfigured on the mountain. His clothes become dazzling white. He converses with Moses and Elijah. The cloud overshadows them and a voice from the cloud says, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. What a great moment. But moments like that don't last. And they got to come down the mountain. And when Jesus comes down the mountain, he lands in a mess. There's a huge hubbub. People are yelling, pointing fingers at one another, and fussing. A man had brought a child to Jesus to to cast out the demon from him. Jesus was gone. The disciples tried their own hand at it. They muffed it. And a brouhaha ensues. The scribes, the disloyal opposition, gleefully observed their failure, and they gloat. Kind of like denominations or churches today. We're not doing all that well, but at least they're doing worse. You will encounter this in ministry. Where parents are desperate over their sick child. And the father pleads with Jesus to help him. He says sometimes the demon throws him into the fire. Sometimes the demon throws him into water. His mother and I are sure that, that, that one someday he's going to get killed. Can you do anything about this power that's got hold of him? He's no different from from parents today. Their child is suffering from some malignant disease. They're caught in some kind of grip of some, some addiction. They're at the mercy of gangs or societal violence. Or they're convulsed by values that roll them around in the dirt. And the father is at the point of giving up hope. But Jesus, well, you know the rest of the story. Disciples come to him afterward in private and said, well, how come we couldn't do it? Where did, where did we go wrong? And, and Jesus said, oh, that's simple. This, this, kind of, this kind of demon can only be driven out by prayer. Do you get it? I mean, this is an applied criticism. The disciples had not prayed. They've been engaging in arguments, but they've not been praying. And notice that Jesus himself does not utter a prayer before performing the exorcism. It's therefore not a matter of saying the right prayer. Jesus doesn't say, here's a prayer that works for me every time. Or I've had good luck with this prayer. It's not a matter of technique. Jesus doesn't say, all right, let's all go back to the exorcism lab and work on our procedures. It's a matter of living a life. A prayer. Not a one-time invocation of God's power. Prayer is openness to God's action in and through us. And prayer stops us from ever asking the question, well, why couldn't we do this? So we go back to the beginning. 
when Mark tells us that Jesus had gone out to pray, and through prayer to prepare. I, it's attributed to Martin Luther. I can find it nowhere I've looked. I can find it nowhere in his writings. If he didn't say it and somebody made it up, it's still good. He's, he's supposed to have said, I have so much to do that if I don't spend three hours a day in prayer, I would never get anything done. I'm not up to the challenge of ministry today. I'm glad you are. But you're not either. It's only through the power of prayer. You've come here to prepare for ministry, to study. We don't give you a grade on prayer. But if you're not up to ministry, and you aren't, you're going to have to do like Jesus and pray.